What's up, Stitches? Welcome to So What? With your gal, your pal, your needlework friend, Isabella Rosner. This is the fourth episode of the podcast, and it's the first episode of a two-part series about Erica Wilson, one of the most important figures in 20th century embroidery, who earned the nicknames the Julia Child of Embroidery and America's First Lady of Stitchery. Today's episode is an interview with Erica Wilson's right-hand woman, Edith Borier, a woman who actually started me on my historical needlework journey. It is an absolute honor to have been able to interview her. While today's episode is about Erica Wilson as a creator and businesswoman, the accompanying episode, which will come out soon, is about Erica Wilson's legacy. Before I explain a bit about who Edith is and how I know her, it's time for a brief social media spiel. For those of you who do not know how So What works, and even for those who do, you can check out images of and links to what we discuss in this interview on the podcast's social media pages. You can see this delightful content on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at So What Podcast. You can also head to the podcast's website, SoWhatPodcast.com, for images, links, and past episodes. The more content, the merrier. At least that's what I think. Okay, time to learn about Edith Borier, today's esteemed guest. According to an oral history interview, quote, Edith Scott Borier was embroidery entrepreneur Erica Wilson's store, seminar, and tour manager, as well as master teacher for her private pupils. Her grandmother, Edith Whitney Batterman, taught her to needlepoint and knit at age 11. From Wilson's correspondence courses, she learned cruel work, then placed first in a needlework show judged by Wilson. She went on to run Wilson's store on Madison Avenue in New York City, demonstrate needlework at museums and department stores, organize Wilson's annual Nantucket, Hilton Head, and Chautauqua needlework seminars, and conduct several of Wilson's group needlework tours, including a visit to mainland China in 1979, end quote. This information has come from an interview that's part of the Bard Graduate Center Craft, Art, and Design Oral History Project. The interview was conducted by Dr. Ann Hilker, the author of Erica Wilson, A Life in Stitches, and one of the people I'm interviewing in episode two of this little Erica Wilson series. Delight! Before we go any further, I should also explain a bit more about who Erica Wilson was. There's a very good summary of Erica on the first page of Winterthur Museum's virtual exhibition called Erica Wilson, A Life in Stitches, which was curated by the late, much-beloved, and missed curator Linda Eaton and Anne Hilker. The exhibition is delightful, and I would absolutely recommend you check it out, so I've added a link to it on the So What social media pages. The summary states, quote, Erica Wilson, 1928-2011, was arguably the most successful embroidery designer, teacher, and entrepreneur in America during the second half of the 20th century. This superlative achievement was nurtured and encouraged by her husband, the renowned mid-century modern furniture designer Vladimir Kagan. Together, they created a highly successful business, all branded under the name Erica Wilson, that included books, kits, a television program, and retail shops. Erica's embroidery designs, sometimes based on historical patterns and techniques, were well suited to the sensibilities of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. 
Erica's presence as the expert on all things needlework was larger than life, end quote. In short, to have known and loved embroidery in the second half of the 20th century was to know and love Erica Wilson. From her books to her embroidery kits to her TV show, which ran on PBS from 1971 to 72, and then again from 1975 to 76, Erica's genius was everywhere. And it's really exciting to be able to celebrate Erica Wilson's embroidery empire here on So What? Now, before we start the interview, I'm just going to have a little moment of personal reflection because Erica Wilson is basically the reason I'm here with you all today. So the summer after my freshman year of university, I had an internship at the Nantucket Historical Association, specifically at a site called the 1800 House, which is a center for the instruction of early American decorative arts and crafts. Nantucket is this tiny little, very cute, very beautiful island about 30 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. So while I was at the 1800 House, I met Edith Borier, who taught some needlework classes there. She explained to me that samplers made in Nantucket can be identified because they usually include a very specific tree motif. That, like, completely blew my mind. I cannot explain to you how much that blew my mind. I could not believe that you could understand where something was made by the inclusion of a tiny little symbol. That's actually what started my love of samplers. Like, that totally blew my world open. And at that same time, I was uncovering all this information about the rich history of Nantucket as a center for needlework education and textile production more generally. I learned about the Nantucket School of Needlery and Erica Wilson's seminars on the island and Nantucket looms and basically this whole hugely rich world of textile making in the 20th century. I was already really interested in textiles by that point, but Edith made me realize how much there was to know and learn about schoolgirl needlework specifically. So thank you to Edith! What a beautiful full circle moment it is for me to be able to interview her nearly a decade after she changed my life. Ah, how cool, how fun, ah, feeling blessed! And now that I've reminisced, let's get into the interview. Here it is. Edith, thank you so much for being here today. It is an absolute honor to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. I'm delighted to be here. How did you start doing needlework? What is your origin story? Well, that's an easy one because it all started with my grandmother. Those were the days grandmothers taught grandchildren how to do needlework because there was time to do it then. Mm -hmm. And taught me how to do needlepoint, the tent stitch, and I remember the very first piece that she gave me was something that she had, uh, had bought in New York. I assume she bought it in New York. And it had a, a, a charming centerpiece. It was, uh, I think, a wire-haired terrier and his doghouse. Oh. And that was stitched by a professional. And it was beautifully stitched, I must say. And of course, at my age, I was 11. I had to do the background and my grandmother chose the most extraordinary color of mauve wool, which is really quite depressing. Ooh, wow. But <laughs> I started, you know, in the upper right-hand corner and she must have showed me exactly what to do. And by golly, I finished it. And the only way I, I knew that I, it was, I was the age of 11 when I did it was because I put the date down in one of the corners, which I will not tell you. <laughs> That's really so sweet. Made it into a pillow. And I still have it. And 
you know, it's it's just a document. That's all. But I'm delighted to uh, to have learned it from her. And she started me. That's that was it. That's the story. That is beautiful. I love that. And that's so often what I love so much is that that is often the story that you hear on these podcasts. When I ask people how they learned, it's always from their mom or their grandmother. And I I just love that lineage of women. How did you come to work for and with Erica Wilson? Well, that's quite a story. <laughs> I'm <not laughs> excited. Because I'd done needlework, I had knitted, I did Argyle socks, and I made probably, you know, unusable socks for the men in the army during the war. Mm -hmm. I had done a little bit of everything. I decided I had never done quilting and I would like to learn. And so I read some books, but I just, I couldn't figure out how you got a design that was in your head onto a piece of fabric. And uh, just by chance, I was looking through the New Yorker magazine and I saw this advertisement, which said that this young woman had come from England. She was English and she had gone to the Royal School of Needlework and she was coming to the United States and she could teach any kind of needlework at all. And if I called a certain number, I could make an appointment and she would come and show me exactly what it was that I wanted to learn. So I thought, this is wonderful. This is terrific. I made the appointment. And on the, on the day, our doorbell rang and I, I was expecting a little old lady, really. And I opened the door and there was this lady there who was taller than I. She had her hair streaked and so did I. She was just about my age. And she had a large smile on her face. And I thought, aha, this is not what I expected, but it sounds as if it's going to be fun. Yeah. So came in and we put the piece of fabric down on the uh, living room floor. And she had come armed with uh, prick and pounce. Well, prick and pounce is a time-honored way to transfer a design that you want onto a piece of fabric. I'd never heard of it. So we got down on our hands and knees and I, I had already put the design underneath the fabric. So what she did was she pricked it. She pricked around the lines that she could see through the, just vaguely through the fabric. And then she put pounce on it. Well, pounce is a powdery substance that you can rub through holes, if you like, and then you can clean it all up. And by golly, you got a design on a piece of fabric. And she showed me how to do this. Well, we laughed, we, we spilled the pounds, we did everything wrong, but I don't know, she just was, was the most charming person. And it reminded me of something that my father used to say. He said, you don't make friends, you recognize them. And, and Erica and I just recognized one another right there. So that was how I started. And from there on, I mean, I'm sure she taught me how to knit too. And, you know, I was kind of, uh, I, I was in it. I was in the soup. <laughs> that story has just made my whole month. That is so nice and wholesome. After that, I, I went to a show, uh, an amateur needleworker show in New York. And I saw a piece that I just thought was, was so attractive hanging on the wall. And it was, a, it was a bird in a cage. And the cage was kind of three-dimensional. Just at that moment, the lady came up to me and she was the mother of a friend of mine and I said who, who does that kind of what kind of work is that 
And she said, that's cruel work. And that was designed by Erica Wilson. I had never heard of Erica Wilson. She said, well, she's got some correspondence courses. Maybe you would like to, to take her correspondence course. And that's how it began. Those correspondence courses are now down at Winter Tour. <laughs> I love that. And when, yeah. when was that? Well, it's, it's in the 60s. I'm talking about <laughs> 1960. That is amazing. And so you knew each other for, what, like four decades? More than yes. that. Wow. Yes, she, she was a great, great friend, as well as being everything else she was. She was a good friend of mine. What was your role in Erica Wilson's embroidery empire and her embroidery world? Well, I think perhaps the it began at, again, another uh, exhibit of, at the, of, um, Amateur Needlework. And by that time, I had done the correspondence courses and I had gotten to know Erica a little bit. And I had asked her to design the covers of uh, two chairs that I want to recover, the chairs belonging to my mother. I went and I got some really beautiful kind of chartreuse shantung and I took it up to Erica and she showed me designs and I chose a design and she had the design put on. I don't think she put it on. And then I chose colors of wool and silk. It was mostly silk actually. And then I, I completed both the chairs and I put it in an amateur needleworker show. And one fine day I was going to the show with my, my family or my husband anyway. Mm -hmm. And out of the, the door came Erica. And I knew her by then and we greeted each other. And she said, oh, Edie, she had this wonderful English accent and marvelous <laughs> voice. She said, oh, Edie, you have to teach all my lessons. I've just given you a first prize. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I could have fallen over on the street at that point. But anyway, she was just wonderful. And I was so pleased. My goodness, I, I don't think I'd ever get, gotten the first prize for anything in my life before. But that was just wonderful. And uh, so that was kind of the beginning of it. And by golly, I started teaching some of her private pupils. And I, I, I knew most of them, as a matter of fact. It, it was it was wonderful. It was just wonderful. And they didn't, I guess, complain too badly. <laughs> and so that's how it started. I love that. You just ran into each other on the street. And she was like, congrats on all of your amazing work. Would you like to teach my courses? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I find Erica Wilson's embroidery world, her business acumen, amazing and kind of unwieldy from an outsider's point of view. It's hard to track yeah. what she was doing when because she was doing so much she was oh she had about six or seven balls in the air all the time and I will have to tell you that Erica of course you know was an extraordinarily gifted designer mm -hmm. and itcher but she had a work ethic that would make us turn us all to stone I think because <laughs> she would she would be awake at, at two o'clock in the morning still designing but she, uh, she got herself too busy. I mean, she was working with Columbia Minerva and a, an annual set of, uh, of instructions and designs that she had to give this magazine every month. It was extraordinary. But on top of that, she wrote 17 books with Scribner. <sighs> and I mean, you imagine, and when you write a book, I understand that you have to sign a contract. And the contract is pretty, pretty stringent. 
you can't, uh, I mean, if you default, uh, I hate to think what would have happened. In any case, she never did. So she was working on that all the time. Then, of course, in later years, she did a television program, which was supposedly the, the Julia Child of needlework. You know, it was enormously popular and everybody should see it who has any, any desire to do needlework or interest uh, in it at all. So that was wonderful. But there was something else in Erica's life that was of extreme importance, and that was her husband. Vladimir hmm. Kagan was a furniture designer, as his father had been. He was an artist, and he was also an entrepreneur. He, he just saw things that it would never occur to Erica to, to think of, like doing a television program. Who would have thought of that? And she had such a personality and, and such a, a drive that uh, she could do all of these things. But of course, she had no time for herself <laughs> at all. Mm. <laughs> so, so, but uh, it, was, it was quite extraordinary. But Vladimir Kagan, whose own career as a furniture designer at the time that Erica was starting out was kind of, um, it had slowed down. In later years, it was his career that absolutely took over her career. And I remember seeing a television program on PBS and he was called a genius. Well, he certainly was a genius with his wife because it was he who saw the possibilities of everything. And Erica was up to doing it. So it was, it was just wonderful. So um, that's, how, that's how she became uh, the most unique person, I think, in her generation to do needlework. Well, it's, it's common knowledge, but I think in the 70s, I, I think she was grossing a million dollars a year. So that's how- that's a lot, wow. That is a lot, that is a lot. But believe me, she was giving it a lot. So wow. that started, but- she needed help. She needed help because mm. the contracts that she signed reduced her time by a certain increment all the time. So she needed someone to help her. She had wonderful stitchers. She had a marvelous assistant who uh, was an artist and who uh, helped not design things, but to, to translate them for her. She really didn't have anyone who did the stitching. She, she would do the stitching or the stitchers would, would finish it. She would tell them exactly what to do and she would show them exactly how she wanted it. But she just had such energy. She was remarkable. But I do think it was the couple that made it possible for Erica to be as success, successful as she was. Wow, dream team. And with you in it, dream trio, all of you well, I don't know. working well, together. She, she did start me uh, teaching her, her students, mm -hmm. and uh, then her husband had the idea of, of getting a shop in New York, and there was one on Southampton, and there was one, of course, in Nantucket uh, eventually. The Southampton one, I think, closed. I don't know. She just had such, such ability to, to see things. Of course, she had a photographic memory, that I, that I know. Wow. And she was always doing something, you know? But it, it was the two of them, really, that made the difference and, the, and why she became so, so remarkable and at, at really the top of, uh, of the needlework industry. And then when her husband decided that it would be a great idea to have this shop, then they came to me with another extraordinary question. He said, will you, will you manage the shop? So uh, I said, but I've never managed anything in my life. I don't know anything. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. 
So in I went, I managed the New York shop for about 20 years, I think. Wow. And all of the classes there, we had classes every morning. We faced Madison Avenue and there were great big picture windows and mm. there was a glass table or a, a crystal table, I don't know what it was, uh, table uh, that seated about six or eight people. And I taught uh, classes uh, of every, every day there. And then we, we had to have classes on Saturday and my husband put his foot down. So uh, we had someone else come in, I, one of my students, I you know, coached her and taught her and everything. And she took over on Saturdays and we had someone in the evenings. I mean, it was crazy. It was just crazy. But that's, that is the kind of appeal that Erica's work had. Vladi came up with the idea of cruises. So what? Uh, cruises wow. and, and tours. So uh, the tours came first. And so he organized, he had a travel agent put together a, a tour to China. We it was in 1979, you couldn't get into China. You, we had to go through Romania first and then into China. Wow, wow. <laughs> was tour, and I had to teach, of course, it was an Erica Wilson tour. Well, a few, a few weeks before we were about to leave, I, I got a telephone call and I don't remember now whether it was Erica or her husband, but they said, Edie, Erica cannot take the tour. I had booked it. I had, I was, you know, I was familiar with all the names. We had about 20 people and some husbands. And I said, you can't go. She said, no, I have these terrible contracts that, that, that make it necessary for me to stay here and finish this work. Oh, no. And so said, I want you to take the trip. I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> and, and she said quickly, well, your daughter can go along and help you. <laughs> so this, this was too much. Of course, I had to take the trip. And I was the leader of the trip. And my daughter came along and ended up putting on some of the garments of the emperor of China, which were, you know, any tourist could put on. It, it was a remarkable experience. So that happened again when they put together a wonderful trip in Scotland and England. Ooh. And... Um, Again, last minute, I got this telephone call. Edie, mm. you're going to have to take the trip. And um, and they and this time, I said they said, and you bring your husband along this time. So so my husband and I took this trip, and we did. We started in Scotland. I had to teach. I remember teaching wow. there very very clearly. And then we came down, and Erica. She flew over, I could have been for a day, I don't know, but she wanted to get to the island of Gia. And so she met us there so that everybody felt a little bit better. At least they got to meet Erica Wilson. <laughs> and uh, then we took a cruise and we cruised on the Rotterdam uh, all around, you know, we went to Bermuda and we went south and, and it, it, was, it was extraordinary. Erica was there. We had about 20 ladies and their husbands. Their husbands didn't take needlework, but mm -hmm. I remember being up on one of the decks and we had Erica's frames, those wonderful standing frames that designed by Vladdy, her husband. And we were up there and we hit some bad weather and I shall never forget it as long as I live because the ship started to move and standing mm -hmm. over everybody with, <laughs> with with a standing frame and I said 
I have got to get out of here. I cannot do this. It will be very, <laughs> very dangerous. So I went up and I whispered to Erica and she said, you go below right away. But my daughter was on this trip. And so my daughter came up and although she wasn't as versed in, in teaching as I was, she knew quite a good deal. She'd been working for Erica. And so she came up and took my place. But oh boy, I'll never forget that trip. <laughs> that was something. Then, uh, you know, we did these tours. And then about 1973, um, oh, well, of course, I haven't told you about, about getting Erica up to Nantucket. No. Uh, we, we know Erica and Vladdy after this, this incident with, uh, you know, her teaching me how to get a design on fabric. Mm -hmm. Uh, we met them at some cocktail party, and my husband and um, and Laddie Kagan got on famously, and we had them for for a drink one afternoon, and um, we discovered they knew we we went up to Nantucket, and they discovered um, that uh, this was a regular thing for us, and Vladdy uh, told us that they had become engaged, Erica and Vladdy, on the beach, and that was quite surprising. So yeah. I said. Well, you know, we, why don't you come up to Nantucket? I mean, I could think they, at that time they had three children. And I said, it's just a paradise for children and you can work up there. And this wasn't the only thing. Marianne Beinecke, who had the Nantucket School of Needlery, had been trying to get Erica to come up there for some time. And Erica had been hesitating and procrastinating. And I think, you know, the fact that we said, well, do come up and my, my husband, uh, it was a lawyer, but he was a real estate broker as well. And he said, I will find you a house. So my husband found the house that they bought, finally bought, but, but oh. rented for many years. And they came up and, uh, oh, what times we had. My husband, as I say, he was a, he was a lawyer. But uh, this one summer, he was running a shop down in Nantucket called the Noisy Oyster. <laughs> and said, now, Erica, you can sell your Appleton yarn from, from my shop. And believe me, that's what happened. And then the next year, Erica sold the yarn from her, her house. And so, so I thought of having a Nantucket seminar. And that's when the seminar started. The first one was in 1974. I was in charge of it and I got all the reservations and we had 40 people sign up for it. It was absolutely a bonanza. Yeah. And there wasn't a large area in Nantucket, a, a big school, a big room. We did have one place, which was the Isaac Coffin School. And um, uh, we taught there. I was her assistant. And then she had a garden and I had a garden. So we would split the, the group in two and they would, they would alternate every other, every other day because everybody wanted to be with, with Erica. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> they would come and they would they would work in my garden. We have pictures to prove it. So we did this, it was extremely popular. And my goodness, we did five different things. It was a five, five day seminar. Uh, at that time, you didn't have any uh, air conditioning on Nantucket. And remember, uh, we used to put the kits together. I would have the help of all the people who were at that time working in the shop down uh, in, in the village. And they would come up and we would be in bathing suits. I love hearing about all of this because I mean, it sounds, it just sounds so fun. And the one thing I haven't said about Erica was she was fun. She loved to laugh and she didn't take herself seriously at all. She was just such fun to be around. That's important about Erica. 
I love that. You can see that in the TV show. You can really see that she is just having, like oh, yeah. she's professional and she knows what she's talking about, but she is just having a good time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I am so delighted by the fact that her legacy is so present still on Nantucket because that her store is still there, right? The Erica Wilson the store. store is there. It is now transferred more to to um, ladies' clothing and children's clothing and that kind of thing. But there's a portion of it that is still needlework. And it is owned and run by uh, one of Erica's daughters. That is just the best. Yeah. I, I, mm, what a beautiful way to commemorate her, her work yeah. and your work and her legacy. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I'm curious. I've always been interested in the fact that she came from England to America and basically started her, what I view as this needlework empire here. How did she decide to come to the US? And was that common? I don't think it was, but I was, I'm curious as to how she decided to make this move and, and start these correspondence courses because that feels looking back like it would have been pretty radical. Well, that is, and the joint there that makes it all understandable is the fact that a lady uh, whom I had known, I don't know, she was a good deal older than I, but she was a great needlework expert. I don't know, maybe she had a child in the school that I went to or something. Anyway, I knew her name. Her name was Mrs. Parshall, Mrs. Darrell Parshall. Mm -hmm. And she lived in Millbrook, New York, and she got the idea to go to the, the Royal School of Needlework and to find out if they had a young person who had graduated or was about to graduate and who would be interested in coming to the United States and giving classes. Indeed, she, she found that Erica would, would be the person who would fill the bill. And Erica simply packed her bag, got on a ship and came to this country when she was a young woman and I don't know that she knew anybody, but she, she went, and I think she lived with Mrs. Parshall and Mrs. Parshall gathered her own friends around and they started the needlework classes. That was the very beginning of it all. I have found throughout all of what you're saying that Erica and you started so much of what still exists in the needlework community today. So that sort of, you know, the, um, the Royal School of Needlework is still hugely important and there still is a lot of movement of RSN students to other parts of the world to teach uh -huh. and things like those tours. I know so many, you know, historic reproduction style needlework groups that go on tours of Britain and go on tours uh -huh. of continental Europe and China. Uh -huh. And it all started, it seems to have all started right here. That's right. That's I right. am delighted. I am so, I am so tickled and overjoyed. Well, I, I would have to say that all you have to do is read Anne Hilker's book on Erica, which is recently out. <laughs> I learned uh, an enormous amount, an enormous amount from Erica Wilson. That's so wonderful. And I bet you couldn't have expected when you were making those two chair covers, what Absolutely. your life would be. <laughs> well, this was, I mean, my life took a different turn. It was extraordinary. I realized that this could possibly be a difficult question because Erica designed so much, but do you have any favorites of her needlework designs? Were there any that really stuck with you? Well, I, I've given this a little thought. Okay. And it, it was, it was terrible. It was terrible because I really couldn't. <laughs> so sorry. You know, this chassis, the, the Chesapeake and, and Ohio 
design she did that was so incredibly fun. But the, the, the one that I think was the most remarkable is one that she, and you will know it well, mm. she designed when she was at the Royal School of Needlework. It is a lady, a lady dressed in a beautiful costume, standing in a garden, and she has a little dog down at her, at her um, uh, ankle. And Erica did it in needlepoint, in cruel, in white work, in black work, and in gold work. And this was part of her curriculum, I believe. And if you look at those different pieces, they're remarkable. They're just remarkable. This is young Erica, but she was such a beautiful stitcher and she, she had such wonderful imagination. And this is a simple design, but she, she just, she changed it completely differently in, in everything, in, in every uh, um, different design that, that she did, di different uh, technique. And I think that's one of my favorite. And the, the other favorite is something that she designed for me. Because oh. um, I'm, I'm not, as I say, I'm not a designer at all. Mm. Uh, and I wanted her to do a whaling ship when she was in Nantucket and I pestered her and she never had time. But this one day I went over and I said, all right, Erica, now, now, come on, here, here's the fabric. And I bought the fabric hand loomed at, at the looms, at the looms, which you know, probably in Nantucket. I do. This, yeah, How cool. it was beautiful fabric and it was blue of the water and blue of the sky, but all different colors. It was, it was just mm. gorgeous. And I took her this fabric, which was quite heavy. And I just said, okay, now you, you got to do this for me. So she said, all right, all right. She must've had 10 minutes to do it. <laughs> and so I got out a book of, of whaling ships from her library and she opened it and she took a moment and she looked at it. And I could see all of this going, going into her head and she picked up an indelible pen and she drew my design of the whaling ship freehand. I nearly had a calypsion fit. <laughs> but, uh, she, then she had to, of course, she had to put a whaling boat in. So she put a whaling boat in, but she only put in five sailors and a wh every whaleboat has six. So it was up to me to put the sixth in. <laughs> so, but this, this was, it was an occasion that I shall never forget. I'm, I'm right back in her living room and having her do this just quite simply because with this photographic memory, she just, she just saw how it was going to be. And this whole, it's, it's big, it's big. And I've given it to my son. It is now in, in my old house in Nantucket. I am curious because Erica and you worked in both silk and cruel wools. Do you, did you ever have a preference? I'm always curious about if people prefer wool or silk and why. Um, it's okay if you don't. I started with Appleton wool because that was Erica's, you know, she, she had a contract with them. Mm -hmm. I learned all my stitches and I, I, I worked in wool for a long time and then there were other disciplines that I, I had no knowledge of. And I asked Erica if she would teach me gold work. That was the only thing she taught me. And I, I did a certain amount of that. But I, I think my favorite is silk. Mm. It, it is the most demanding. It is um, different from 
any other yarn or, or cotton or anything that you can use. Mm -hmm. It's but it's the most rewarding, I think. Uh, and that's my favorite, I would say. I love that. Thank you. Are there other things that you want to talk about regarding Erica Wilson that we haven't gotten to? It's been a, a good part of my life and um, my daughter has done it and has done it for Erica and, and with Erica. I don't know. It's just something that is a very important part of me. And, and uh, it's something that you can do as you grow older. I think this all comes into your last question because I, I was giving it some thought. And I, I think women have an urge to create. I don't, I don't know about men, but, but certainly women do. I don't know. It's, it, it becomes something that fulfills your life very, very strongly. And I, I think women are going to find a way. It's very difficult for women um, in, this, in this particular COVID era, era in which we live because, you know, they're locked in. Well, of course, being locked in is the best way to be able to do your needlework without any question. <laughs> True. So um, I, I have, uh, but I have not done any needlework uh, recently, but I, I will pick it up again. When I get to Nantucket, I will do some things. And, and uh, you know, whenever I wasn't working, it seemed to me I was taking a class with some, some, somebody who was teaching something because I wanted to learn it as much as I possibly could. Women will, will have to find a way to do this because they need to create, I think. And it's very difficult if you have a job to do a piece of needlework. It's so important. I mean, you know, just to be able to use your hands and create something. It's, it's very, very rewarding and fulfilling. Excellent answer. And I was curious to get your answer about that last question about the role of needlework in today's world, because you have seen, you've seen the role of needlework change over a lot of time, oh, over yeah. a lot of decades. Oh, and I think yeah. you were instrumental in, in that change to a certain extent, because I do think, I mean, at least from my outsider point of view, I think that I've always understood Erica Wilson to have really impacted and changed how needlework works in the 20th century in terms of accessibility and interest. Yeah. And you were, you were part of, you, you were part of establishing that role. How well, you... what was unique about Erica, I think, was that she didn't care about breaking rules. She was perfectly happy uh, taking you know an odd piece of fabric and then she would be inspired and she would take an odd piece of wool and she would she would be able to create something that nobody else had thought of and it was attractive and I mean th this is what was her her great genius I think. Edith thank you so much I like cannot even tell you how much this means to me but also how much I learned I am beyond grateful for this opportunity. So thank you so much for chatting with me. You are very, very welcome. Uh, anytime I can do anything for Erica, whom I admired as much as anybody I've ever known, I am delighted. Hello, me again. Edith is just such a delight and a fount of knowledge, so I'm absolutely thrilled we've gotten a glimpse into her many decades-long friendship and business relationship with Erica Wilson. Very few people alive today have witnessed the way needlework changed in the 20th and 21st centuries the way Edith has. It's so interesting to place Erica Wilson and what she did for embroidery in the second half of the 20th century into a longer lineage of needlework education and business. 
She was like the needlework business people who came before her in that she too sold materials and kits and designs, but she was different in that she created a whole world for needleworkers. She offered tours and taught on TV and published 16 books. She was the precursor to people on YouTube offering needlework instruction videos and things like needlework tours of Britain, which exist in surprisingly large numbers today. I looked it up and there are like at least six different options you could choose. I think she was probably the person who most effectively ushered embroidery making into its current 21st century form. What is clear from Edith's stories is that Erica Wilson and this whole world of stitching she created with her husband and with Edith sat perfectly at the intersection of business and joy. When it comes down to it, she was a businesswoman and one who was very successful, but what seemed to be her superpower was the joy she was able to impart on those she taught to stitch via correspondence courses, classes in her shops, seminars, or TV programs. That feels fitting, given that not only was she called the Julia Child of Embroidery, her TV studio was actually next to Julia's, too. I feel like Erica Wilson's career and her spreading of needlework knowledge can be summarized by borrowing from Child's seminal book, The Joy of Cooking. Erica Wilson gave so many 20th century embroiderers the joy of stitching. And on that possibly quite saccharine note, I will conclude this episode. I'm super grateful for the opportunity to speak about the powerhouse of 20th century American embroidery instruction with someone who is so central to her success. So thank you, Edith, and thank you all for listening. I'll be back soon with part two of the Erica Wilson series, which will be an interview with Anne Hilker and Erica Wilson's daughter, Vanessa. Now go out and stitch some stories and go watch clips from Erica Wilson's show on YouTube because it is truly so much fun. Bye! Thank you.